Well, good morning again. Uh, I hope that many of you had an opportunity to join us uh, yesterday afternoon outside in the parking lot for the uh, Cedar Valley Church picnic. Uh, there was a lot of food. There was a lot of laughter. There was a lot of foam. Uh, there was a, so much foam. And uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go to the Cedar Valley Facebook page. You can see pictures of all of the foam. Uh, but it was a great time. Um, I have to tell you this one story, um, and I wouldn't have realized it if my daughter, Georgia, hadn't pointed it out to me. But um, about two-thirds of the way through the picnic, uh, she noticed a young man who walked up to the parking lot, and, and he came, and he, he got a plate full of food, and then he, he walked back out into the parking lot again. And Georgia comes up to me and she goes, do you have any idea who that was? And I said, no. And she's like, I don't have any idea who that was either. And so a little bit later, I'm taking garbage cans to the uh, dumpster to get rid of them. And I see a car that's parked. It's kind of hidden behind a pickup truck. And there's three teenagers in it. And they're, they're all sitting there. They're eating plates of pulled pork. <laughs> they had crashed our party. And so I, I, I walked and I, I noticed it and I was thinking about it and I walked back and I got the other garbage can and I'm walking back by and I, I see them and they're kind of looking at me and grinning and I gave them a thumbs up and, and I said, uh, good food? And they're like, they smiled and kind of laughed and I was like, you can have more. And <laughs> but it was kind of funny, you know, that, uh, you know, we, we wanted to invite neighbors to uh, the, the, the picnic and, and God provided some neighbors uh, in a way that we probably didn't really expect for it to happen. But, uh, yeah, that, so that was one of the interesting things that, that happened. Uh, I'd like you to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the Old Testament, to the book of Daniel. Um, wonderful book. I know you know it well. Um, one of the, the foundational prophetic books, of the certainly of the Old Testament and, and truly of all of the Bible. In fact, it's been said, and I think it's correct, that all of the prophecies of the New Testament in some way connect to the prophecies that are revealed in, in the book of Daniel, especially in the chapter that we're in, uh, Daniel chapter 9. Uh, and as enticing as that is, and as much as it would be fun to preach upon some of these prophecies, we're not going to do that this morning. We're going to take the first half of Daniel 9, uh, his prayer. Uh, the prayer that he, that he presents to God, uh, and God responds by sending him the angel Gabriel and the words of this tremendous prophecy, uh, the 70 weeks of Daniel. Uh, but before we look at Daniel chapter 9, I, I want to take you back two years, almost two years to the day, just a little bit over to that, uh, to uh, the day of the derecho. And uh, that's, that's a day that lives in infamy uh, for, for many of us, all of us who were here at that time. I know it certainly does for my family. Uh, and I remember it very well. I remember it like it was yesterday um, because my family was at our house when the derecho hit and I was 50 yards away from them in my car down the street and I could not get to them. The storm was, you remember it, I don't need to describe it. The storm was so bad, 50 yards separated me from my house and my family, who I knew had to be terrified and had to be just just out of their minds with worry for me and, and, and fear and so forth. But there was, there was absolutely nothing that I could do to get to them in, in that, what, 35, 40 minutes that that storm raged. Uh, and so the only thing that I, can do, I could do was just simply sit in my car and pray. 
There, there was, there was, everything else was out of my hands. I, I had to entirely entrust my family uh, to God during those moments, uh, those long, long moments. And, and, and so that's what I did. And, and when the storm ended and I, I was able, or at least slowed down enough that I was able to get up to my house and, and come into the house, I opened up the door and, and everybody was down in the basement and they were frightened and rightfully so. Uh, but, but the first thing that they told me was that they also had been praying. You know, and specifically Haddon had been praying. And his prayers had been, you know, God, please protect my dad. And the Lord answered his prayer. And what we have in Daniel chapter 9 is a model of prayer. And, and the Bible is full of these. Uh, it's full of these examples of, of what prayer ought to look like and what it consists of. And when we look at the full spectrum of all the prayers in the Bible, we get this panoramic um, portrait of, of prayer and, and the doctrine of prayer, a biblical theology of prayer. And so we, 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 we want to look at all of the different prayers and, 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 and to really truly understand the, the fullness of what prayer is. But this prayer in Daniel chapter 9 in particular is one that I always come back to uh, because in it we have a, a righteous man, a godly man, a man who at this point in time, is probably in his 80s. He's coming to the end of his life. And a man who is, has not spent uh, his life in freedom and in liberty, but he has been part of the captive people of God. And as he's coming to the end of his life, and as he's looking ahead to the end of that captivity, he prays this prayer. And I want to share it with you. In the hopes that each of us will come away learning something new or something fresh about prayer. Since we can lay hold of the power of God through prayer, Daniel's prayer teaches us that we must cry out to him. And so using Daniel's prayer as a model, we're going to see the following we will see that when we pray, in part what we should pray is, O oh Lord, listen. That's number one. O oh Lord, listen. O oh Lord, forgive. That's number two. And O oh Lord, act. O oh Lord, act. And this structure comes from the prayer itself from verse 19. O oh Lord, listen. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, act. And so we begin with the first, O oh Lord, listen. Daniel 9, 17 begins the, this way. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your people, of your servant, and to his supplications. In 1 Kings 8, 28 through 30, King Solomon spoke the following to God. He said, give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. O oh Lord, my God, hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said, my name shall be here, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. 
Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Eight times in the book of Psalms, the words, hear my prayer, are used. And this is also the cry of Daniel as he seeks the Lord. We begin with the background of the prayer, verses 1 through 3. And we read in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting sackcloth, and ashes. The first year of Darius was 539 B.C. And that was the year that Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians. And this great victory, of course, came as no surprise to Daniel because God had already told him that the Medo-Persian Empire would conquer Babylon. If you remember in Nebuchadnezzar's great dream in Daniel chapter 2, the head of gold, which represented Babylon, would be replaced by the chest and the arms of silver, which, replaced, which portrayed Medo-Persia. And later visions revealed, for example, in chapter 7 of Daniel, that the bear, that is, the Persians, would conquer the lion. But long before Daniel's day, both Isaiah and Jeremiah had predicted the fall of Babylon. So it's no surprise, really, that Daniel started studying afresh the scroll of the prophet of Jeremiah. Daniel here calls Jeremiah's writings the word of the Lord. King Jehoiakim had tried to burn up Jeremiah's prophecies. He tried to destroy them. But the Lord had preserved them because they were his very words. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The prophet Isaiah says the grass withers and the flower, flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. The psalmist writes, long ago I learned from your statutes that you established them to last forever. Over the centuries... People have ignored, denied, attacked, and sought to destroy the Holy Scriptures. But the Word of God remains. It is still here. As the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is breathed out by God. The Old Testament as well as the New and the Holy Scriptures are the only dependable source of truth about God, about man, about salvation, and about the future. In these days of rapidly changing ideas, events, and situations, the unchanging Word of God stands as our dependable light an unshakable foundation, regardless of anything else, as people of God, we must be people of his word. 
And this is the example that Daniel gives to us in the openings of this chapter. God revealed to Jeremiah that the people of Israel would be taken to Babylon, that they would be exiled from their land for 75 or for 70 years. You can read about this in Jeremiah 25 and 29. God had commanded his people to give the land something called a Sabbath rest every seven years and then a year of Jubilee every 50 years. You can read about this in Leviticus 25. During this period of rest, the people were not allowed to sow seeds or to cultivate their land. If the Israelites were not allowed to plant during the sabbatical year, one would wonder what then were they to eat. Leviticus 25, verses 6 through 7, gives us the answer. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, your male and female servants, and the hired worker and temporary resident who live among you, as well as for your livestock and the wild animals in your land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. You see, in giving these sabbatical years, the Lord was asking his people to trust him. To trust him that he would provide their daily bread, that he would provide for their needs. The food for the Israelites, the servants and the livestock was to come not from sowing, not from labor, not from work, but rather it was to come from harvesting the sabbatical's year, the sabbatical year's volunteer crops, reaping the harvest that grew on its accord in that seventh year. The Lord's promise to provide this volunteer crop in Leviticus 25 anticipates the people's question, what will we eat in the seventh year? If we do not plant a harvest... For a crop. I will send you, says the Lord, such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. This is the Lord's answer how I'm going to provide for you during this sabbatical time. I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. While you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. In other words, the Israelites had no reason to worry while they obeyed. God had promised to take care of them if they would only trust in him. Observing the sabbatical year was an important sign of trust and faith in the Lord. And it was to be accompanied by tremendous blessings. On the other hand, refusing to obey this command, God warned, would lead to a curse. Leviticus 26, 33 to 35, I will scatter you among the nations and I will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste. Your cities will lie in ruins. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lies desolate. And you are in the country of your enemies. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the time that it lies desolate, the land will have the rest it did not have during the Sabbath, you lived it. So, trust in the Lord, 
follow his commandments for the sabbatic year, and the Israelites were guaranteed, promised a tremendous blessing. Fail to obey him, and the Lord would be equally faithful in bringing about a curse. And sadly, we know from the history of the nation of Israel that they did, in fact, fail to observe these sabbatical years. They continued cultivating and harvesting their land on the seventh year, just as they had all the other years. God had built into the Israelites' calendar the opportunity to trust in him. Think about that. Yes, the, the, the sabbatical year was, was an opportunity for the land to be restored, to be revived and revitalized. But spiritually speaking, what the Lord had done is he had built into their calendar an opportunity to trust in him. I wonder how many items he has built into our calendars that are opportunities to trust in him. As a result, but Israel, they ignored this opportunity. As a result of that and other sins, God brought the Assyrians. He brought the Babylonians against Israel. And God's people were removed from the promised land for a period of time. And the author of Second Chronicles notes the, significant, the significance of the deportations when he writes, The land enjoyed its Sabbath's rests all the time of its desolation it rested when the lord taught his disciples to pray confession of sin was an important part of that prayer jesus taught us to pray forgive us our debts or our trespasses as we have also forgiven our debtors. The nation of Israel had found itself under the thumb of the, the heavy hand, rather, of the judgment of God. And as we move into the center of this prayer, Daniel, speaking on behalf of his people, cries out, O Lord, forgive. O Lord, forgive. Verses 16 and 17. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. Daniel's prayer is no different than what the Lord Jesus taught us to pray. And while his prayer was certainly personal, he so identified with the people of Israel that his prayer involved national concerns. The pronoun he uses throughout this prayer of confession is we rather than they. He confessed that he and the people had sinned greatly against the Lord. They had broken the terms of his gracious covenant. According to Daniel 9, verses 5 and 6, the Jews had sinned. They had rebelled. They had turned away from his law. 
They had disobeyed his commands. They had done wrong and refused to listen to the messengers God had sent to them. And God had been long-suffering. He had been patient with his covenant people. But the time came when he acted. And what were the consequences of the nation's rebellion? Verse 8 tells us that they became a sinful people, a people covered with shame, and a scattered people. Their land was overrun by enemy soldiers. Their great city of Jerusalem was destroyed, and their holy temple was desecrated, robbed, and burned. No wonder the Jews were ashamed, but it was their own sins that had brought these disasters upon them because their kings and their princes and their priests had disobeyed God's laws and refused to obey the prophets which he had sent to them to call them back to himself. In many ways, of course, we are no different than the Israelites. The New Testament tells us That we are all sinners. That every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says we sin daily in thought, word, and deed. A prayer of confession used hundreds of years ago at the time of Luther, at the time of the Reformation, says, Deepen the sorrow within us for our sins. Do we pray something similar to that? Deepen the sorrow. The sorrow within us for our sins. In other words, make us aware of the gravity of our sins against you. And fill us with holy sorrow. Holy grief. Because we have Sinned against you. And so we confess our sin as Daniel did. But Daniel not only confesses his sin, he also confesses the righteousness of God in verses 7 through 16. He says, in part, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Refusing to obey. This is not just a a sense of, I didn't know, Lord. This was an act of rejection, of defiance. They refused to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us. Listen to what Daniel is saying here. He is tying the the situation that the people of Israel, including himself, find themselves in directly with their, their decision to turn away and to walk away from God. To walk away from the goodness of God, which is wrapped up in the law which he gave to the people. The law of Moses, the servant of God. All these judgments, he says, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have, now listen to this. We don't always think of God's faithfulness in these terms. But listen to what Daniel says here. And this is in the context of God being faithful. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us. And against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. 
upon the whole heaven. Nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. He concludes, the Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does. Yet we have not obeyed him. The righteousness of God, that is the confession of Daniel here. He acknowledges the rightness of God in judging his people. And that's part of what it means to come to grips, to have that sorrow awakened within us when it comes to the depth of our own sin as well, is to realize the rightness of God in judging us. He is right when he does so. He is righteous in judging. Revelation 16 says, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And so that is the bad news, is it not? God punishes sin. God punishes sin. There may be a period of time between our rebellion and our sinful rejection of his word and the time when that punishment comes to pass. But be assured, it will come. You reap what you sow. It will come. That is what Daniel tells us here, and that is what the people experience. The bad news is that God does punish sin with judgments, and they are righteous judgments. But the good news, the good news is that he is also righteous in his forgiveness. He is righteous in his forgiveness. Verses 7 through 10. Lord, you are righteous. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants and prophets, but the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. The Lord is righteous then, even in his forgiveness. And this does not mean that he just turns his head, that he winks at our sin and pretends that it does not happen. That is not what forgiveness is, and that is not what the righteous God does. The Lord says he does not leave the guilty unpunished in Exodus 34, verse 7. Because God is just... All sin, every sin, will be punished. Every sin. Because he's just. Either a person will pay the penalty for his own sin. That's one option. Or there is a second option. Someone else must pay the penalty for that sin. But who, oh who, would be so gracious 
so gracious enough to pay the price of sin and bear the pain of judgment in my place, who would do such a thing? The answer, of course, from the pages of Scripture is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ pays for my sin. But we might ask the question, we're talking about the righteousness of God and, and, and how he, he must punish sin and he must be just. How could Jesus pay for my sin and God still preserve his justice? And Paul answers that question in Romans chapter 3, verses 25 through 26. He said, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement, as a propitiation, your translation may say. Through faith in his blood, he did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. I know a father of a son. And uh, when the, the son was, I don't know, about five years old, he, he had done something wrong. He had... He'd, I don't know the exact details of it, but something, he had done something wrong, and it's something that he needed to be punished for. He had sinned, and he needed to be punished for that sin. And as his dad was talking to him about it, <clears throat> explaining why there had to be discipline for his sinful act, uh, the little boy began to become concerned about his disobedience, and it made him wonder if he would go to heaven when he died, had his sin rendered him incapable now of, of going to heaven. And this dad took the opportunity to share the gospel with this little five-year-old son of his. And he explained to him how Jesus took our punishment upon himself. That we all had sinned, but Jesus had come and, and he had taken our punishment. And this just kind of went right over the head of this little five-year-old boy that doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand what you're talking about, Dad. Can I go play you know, PlayStation now? No. What the father did is he explained to his son that instead of spanking the little boy for his sin, the father would take the spanking instead. The father would take the spanking instead. He would take the, the discipline that the little boy deserved for his disobedience. And suddenly the message of Jesus taking our place clicked. And he understood something new and something more about the magnificent grace that is offered to all because Jesus Christ took our sin upon himself. He bore it upon ourselves. God judged him in our place. God's wrath was poured out upon him. He drank the cup till it was empty of God's wrath. And so God is righteous. And Daniel acknowledges that when he judges. But he is also righteous in that he forgives. And when we come before the Lord in prayer, this is what we as his children, or those of us who know his, his Son as our Savior, this is what we too can proclaim and claim ourselves. God, you are righteous in your forgiveness. 
and in your mercy. We can cry out, O Lord, listen, as Daniel did. O Lord, forgive, assured that he does. Not on the basis of anything that we do. Not on the basis of anything that we can provide. Solely on the basis of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on a tree outside the streets of what in Daniel's days desolate Jerusalem. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. And finally, O Lord, act. It's the example of Daniel in this prayer that we are able to boldly ask our Lord to act. We are able to boldly ask our Lord to act. And when we do so, keep our eyes open looking for the answer. The church in Jerusalem was earnestly praying for the release of Peter in the book of Acts, the early days of the church. He had been imprisoned. And the church had gathered, and they were earnestly praying for his release. And as soon as they began to pray, an answer was given from the Lord. They did not know it yet, but an angel had been sent to remove the chains from Peter's arms and to open the gates of the prison. But when Peter arrived at the home of Mary, the mother of John, a lady by the name of Rhoda ran to tell the praying group of believers that he was at the door, and they told her that she was quite simply out of her mind because Peter was in prison. They had asked the Lord to act. But when he did, they didn't see it. They struggled to believe it. As soon as they began to pray, God began to answer. The same was true for Daniel. If we were to read down in verse 23, the angel Gabriel appears to Daniel and says, as soon as you began to pray, an answer was given. Think about that. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given. What, what was, that goes all the way back to verse 4. Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and commandments for those who love him and keep his commandments. He hasn't even gotten to the sin part yet. And Gabriel tells him, as soon as you began to pray, an answer was given. That is awesome. That reveals a relationship between the almighty God in heaven and his people here on this earth. Have you ever felt alone? Have you ever felt by yourself? Have you ever felt insignificant? Have you ever felt not heard, not seen not known, pray. Because as soon as you begin to pray, you have all of God's attention. You have all of his attention. I believe that is what God does for his children all the time. As soon as we pray, an answer is on its way. Isaiah thirty nineteen says, how gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Isaiah 58, 9, then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. 
Isaiah 65, 24, before they call, before they call, I will answer. I don't even know how that works. While they are still speaking, I will hear. Just meditate for a moment on the relationship that is being described here between the people of God and God himself. I'm going to read those verses again. Isaiah 30, 19. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Isaiah 58, 9. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. Isaiah 65, 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. If you are here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, that is the relationship that you have with the God of the universe. Why, oh why, would we not take every possible opportunity to speak to him, to pray to him, to cry out to him, oh God, hear, knowing that he does. Oh God, forgive convinced by the word of God and by the blood of the Savior that he does. Oh, God, act before the words are even out of our mouths. He is acting. But you may say to me, if God immediately answers the prayers of his children all the time, why does our experience seem so often to be otherwise? Most of the time, or at least many times, there seems to be a long delay between our prayer and the answer to that prayer. Think about this historical account. The angel Gabriel came to Daniel with the message of what would happen in the future as soon as he began to pray. But the answer itself did not unfold completely for almost 500 years. When the answer to Daniel's prayer finally came in its fullness, it came with many twists and turns, challenges and discouragements and time. The only difference between us and Daniel is that the angel Gabriel came immediately and told him when and how it would happen. When you pray, realize that God hears, that he forgives, and that he formulates an answer. And though his answer is immediate, his action may take years to unfold. And that is that built-in element to our calendar, written in it by God himself, to trust, to believe. During that terrible storm, our family prayed. And the Lord heard and he acted. Almost before the winds had stopped, people of God were dispatched by God to help us. And I know that is true for many of you in this room as well or listening on live stream. 
the storm had barely even, the winds had barely even died down and people were coming, friends and, 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 and the people of God. Daniel's prayer here is a reminder to us, and it's more than a reminder, it's a model of the relationship between a child of God and his Savior, of his Lord, of his King. And as we follow along in this model, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, act. I pray that these, this, and my desire really is, is that this model sinks into our own hearts a little bit more. Makes us a little bit more aware of where God has written into our calendars. Opportunities to trust him. Opportunities to come to him. Opportunities to bring our requests. And opportunities to ask for his forgiveness. To acknowledge our sin. And to truly seek that deep sorrow when we have sinned against him. But I hope also it instills within us a confidence that comes from the word of God itself. That God is not slow to hear. He is not slow to act. So let us be a people of prayer. A people who seek our space out of an acknowledgement and awareness of how desperately we need him and how much he longs to know us and for us to know him. Father, I do ask that for us, ask that for myself, for my brothers and sisters, Lord. Please help Daniel's prayer. In Daniel chapter 9 here, that you've recorded and preserved for us to change us, uh, to, to seek your face, to challenge us to, to come to you in confession and, and recognition of our sin when we have, we have gone against you and we have transgressed you. And to look with eyes Father, for your answer. And we ask, Lord, that as that answer unfolds, and however way that it does, and over the length of time that it takes for that to happen, we would ask for your patience and a true and deep awareness of your good. And we thank you. Amen.